0: Hi, this is presenter Crystal DiNapoli, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R each Sunday afternoon. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU. So today we're going to be speaking with Kalkadoon artist Bree Buttonshaw. Operating under the artist alias Little Button, Brie is a talented digital artist who integrates her proud Aboriginal culture with a contemporary digital approach. Bree's works are recognised for their characteristic bright colour palettes, intricate patterns and funky nature, while also centralising cultural resistance and pride. And so Brie has worked with many organisations, some notable ones being Triple J, Shine, Support Act, and today we'll be discussing with us her recent project with the Brisbane Street Art Festival, as well as the release of two recent collections, Mianjin and also NAIDOC. Brie, welcome to Indigenuity hi well it's so it's so cool to hear your voice I've you know followed you for a long time now a big fan <laughs> of your art so acknowledging you're a real person with a real voice is uh, wonderful um, in this moment I am and thank you for
1: that intro you made me sound so much deadlier than I actually am oh
0: shush you are you're an absolute <laughs> legend I'm very excited to have the chance to speak with you so I really am grateful for you coming onto the show I wanted to start off by sort of taking a peek into your your art so For someone who is uninitiated and perhaps has not seen your work before, I was wondering how would you describe your art practice?
1: So basically, Little Button, which is my artist name, is just, it's weird, it's wacky, it's funky, it's taking my culture and who I am, but putting a more contemporary spin on it. Um, I love using bright colours, I love... Drawing weird shapes and weird things—it's—it's it's just a fun space. Like I have a lot of fun with my art. I don't take anything too seriously. It's just yeah, a place where I can just express myself and have a lot of fun.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. And de- I would definitely describe your art as fun as well. Bright colors, <laughs> like your patterns and everything—absolutely gorgeous. So I guess for like a lot of people who ha- you know find themselves. Uh, in you know invested in a field that they're so in love with which clearly your love for your art is just obvious just looking at your pieces I was wondering if you could tell us when did this passion start for you
1: um I guess like art and being creative has always been part of my family like my family are very much like if we wanted something we'd be like oh we can make that or we can do that so we're very DIY very creative thinking outside of the box but I didn't take my art too seriously until a couple years ago where I was a public servant and then I had a quarter-life crisis and I was like, I actually don't want to do this. I really like art. So I started Little Button and it's kind of taken off from there. I, my family who, like, fostered this kind of creativity I, when I was younger, my mum and my grandma, they helped me with my art. Um, and they're non Indigenous, but they let me, they really follow my lead and are so supportive of me, my culture. And yeah, that's where I am now. I just randomly decided that I don't want to have an office job I want to paint and do fun art things and then I did it
0: (laughs) well that sounds like excellent motivation and so was it obvious to you when stepping into expressing yourself in this way that you would be working with digital art because I I know from reading online that you did especially in your youth you've dabbled in a whole bunch of different mediums but digital art seems to be your um one of your main focuses at least was that super obvious to you that that was going to be where you'd be able to express yourself
1: It was kind of out of necessity in a sense. Like when I was living on my own, working as a public servant, it's very expensive to live on your own. So I couldn't afford like lots of different paints and all these sorts of things. So I was like, if I just draw on my iPad, I have every single paint color, every single like texture and like I can do spray paint textures or paintbrush textures. So it's kind of like a easy thing if that makes sense
0: yeah so it was like a very accessible way I guess of you being able to without like needing to I guess (laughs) because it is it is very expensive to do art like the prices (laughs) of paints in an art store just give me a heart attack (laughs) so I can understand the value that a simple iPad could present to you being able to access a wide range of uh, materials I guess that would usually be just even more um, in unaffordable I guess
1: yeah I and I love my iPad it's like my baby I. I keep it close to me all the time. It's right next to me right now. <laughs> um, but through that, I've been able to um, – It's. I guess it's a lot more easier when you create products and things like that to have them digitized and so that way they're all vectorized so you can blow them up really big or blow them up really small. So it was kind of a – yeah, an, a necessity going into – this new world where a lot of stuff is digital and like if I wanted to put stuff on Instagram it's easy I can just upload it I don't have to like get good lighting to take a photo of something I've done on a canvas um but I do still paint on canvas but those are more pieces for me because that's a bit of like art therapy I guess
0: oh absolutely I understand that one completely (laughs) and so with your I guess your journey into art then so you your pathway was I guess um you know, you didn't, you didn't study or anything, you for yourself sort of you know, was in a position that you didn't particularly enjoy and decided to essentially, I guess, um, go on this journey in this sort of digital format. So, do you think yeah. it's a necessity for people who want to get into art to um, consider studying or would you advise them to go in a, cer- a different route?
1: I mean, I'll never not advise to not study because I am a long-term student. I <laughs> have two degrees and I'm currently doing a master's so I'm kind of like chronically in headstep so I (laughs) love study (laughs) but um, I think art is something that's so beautiful because there are no rules like of course you have color theory and all those sorts of things but when you break those rules you can create some really unique pieces as well and art is just I feel I'm using my hands a lot when I talk (laughs) because it's something so special to me it's I think everyone can create art I think art is super subjective it's beautiful and have a go if you want to do it because if I can do it anyone can do it and yeah go to school if you want to for art but I don't think it's necessary
0: yeah no I I like that perspective as well because um I guess sometimes, I, you know, I've always loved art but never considered myself an artist at all. Um, and I guess you sort of – I've always sort of seen it as something that you've – it's like I guess i like got a sort of hard – Um, uh, I guess like hurdles to sort of get past to get into it you know a fine arts Mm -hmm. degree and like you know like a very long investment and seeing um, other people emerge through different routes I think is very inspiring for a lot of people who do enjoy art but perhaps aren't interested in study can't afford um, to go down that route etc so I think I think what you're saying is uh, wonderful you're breaking down some barriers and uh, (laughs) smashing the door open for others to, to come on in. So I wanted to ask you about what you've done. I've worked on a number of projects. I wanted to ask you about a pretty recent one, um, that, which is absolutely stunning. Um, I'm saying as I've seen the image myself, but uh, you created a mural for the Brisbane Street Art Festival that is 32 metres long. <laughs> uh, can you tell us a bit about, I guess, sort of painting a, an audio picture for our listeners? Can you tell us a bit about this mural?
1: So basically, yeah. So it's 32 metres. So it's about three shipping containers, which is it's massive. It's giant. And basically it's in a U shape and it's kind of like, I think it looks like an aquarium. It's got a water background with like different shades of blue and it's all flowing. And then we've got some sea animals, like a whale and a stingray and some fish and turtles. And then there's like um coral everywhere and it's really vibrant and really colorful um it was a lot of work it was my first ever mural (laughs) so taking on something that was 32 meters it was a lot there was like a miscommunication and I thought it was 12 meters (laughs) so when my mom and I rocked up on the first day we're like oh my god um and I couldn't have done it without my mom she was amazing but Yeah, it's it's very bright.
0: It's gorgeous. It it definitely (laughs) um, it's it exemplifies your art style. I feel with those like very bright color palette palettes, those very unique, beautiful patterns, intricate patterns that you come up with. Um, It is absolutely gorgeous, and I think thinking of it as an aquarium image is perfect. Very bright, beautiful (laughs) blues. Uh, Yes. So when it comes to the mural itself, so, you know, the fact that it is a focus on, um, I guess, like water and the beautiful animals that live within our waterways, how did that become the focus for the mural?
1: I guess um, two reasons. One, the location, it's um, very close to the water um, with the shipping containers. It's like a quarry kind of industrial area. And the second one is I've always loved drawing animals and I don't know what it is. I like to think of it as when I draw animals, I feel connected to my culture. I feel connected to myself and I feel connected to country because like our people have been drawing and painting animals for thousands and thousands of years. So when I draw animals, I feel like I'm doing those practices that that they did and it's very special and That's what I mean when I take on like a cultural element, but I also make it my own by doing it in like bright pink.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that. (laughs) Sorry, especially as someone who's fortunate enough to have seen your art, um, I can absolutely visualise the the way that you uh, create your animals. And it's just, (laughs) it is very vibrant, very beautiful. And so has your experience with creating this mural, especially taking into account that you thought it was 12 metres and then it ended up being 32, <laughs> would you see yourself pursuing, like, you know, accepting invitations or pursuing the creation of another mural in future?
1: Oh, definitely. I have a few lined up that are still, like, falling into place, which is very fun. It's It was a massive learning experience and the Brisbane Street Art Festival people were so supportive and so helpful because – I was like, oh, yeah, I'm probably just going to, like, paint it all by hand. And they're like, um, you want, have you heard about spray paint? <laughs> and I was like, oh, that, that would probably help <laughs> cover a bit of area. Because um, my mum and I, we did it together. And so we had, like, a projector, traced it all, and then we went in, like, paint by numbers kind of thing. Like, I designed it on my iPad and we projected it onto the wow. shipping container. Yep. And then my mum went around and painted where I told her to paint, um and we had like these tiny little paintbrushes <laughs> and then the Brisbane Street Art Festival, like let, let us show you how to use a spray can. And I was like, Oh my god, this is amazing.
0: <laughs> oh, that's that's awesome. I love that it was such a I guess like a very wonderful environment sort of to be in and that you're learning those new skills as well. And mm-hmm. and that excitement to continue it in the future as well. Cause I thought absolutely gorgeous mural and it would be wonderful to see your art on more public spaces for sure. <laughs> So then, I wanted to chat about your recent collection, Mianjin. So, and mm-hmm. um, I was one, So, I guess like the central focus is you have um, a pretty consistent sort of uh, artwork that you've created. So focused on Mianjin, and then you've released it in a collection on a number of different products. And so, I was wondering if you could describe the artwork to our listeners. Um, what sort of the meaning is, and, w- and I guess visually what we're seeing as well, because I just find it so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Sure,
1: thank you first of all um so mianjin is means Brisbane, and if you've been to Brisbane City, you'll know of the brisbane river um it is i don't know what it is about the brisbane river like it is i mean it's it's a muddy river it's it's beautiful but it's also brown but um <laughs> there's something about it that I feel so connected to because. I work, um, I used to work on Mianjin country in Toriboyago country. I would see it every day. Something so, I don't know what the word is. I feel super connected to it. Mm. And when you look at a bird's eye view of the Brisbane River, it is so cool. It has the weirdest shape, it weaves in and out. And I just love the shape and I love drawing that kind of like weaving in and out shape so essentially the artwork is a bird's eye view of part of the river in the center of like the city and then like some of the suburbs around it in almost kind of like they look like little suns i guess around it Hmm. but the, the brisbane river like the shape I, th- I feel weird about it because I just love it so much. Like it's just a really funky shape, I guess.
0: It is. It is very uh, unique. I feel so. It's like <laughs> a pretty, like tightly sort of weaving, um, curving waterway Mm -hmm. uh, and is absolutely gorgeous your artwork I love how blue the beautiful river is and yet all of the Mm -hmm. the, I guess like the very intricate pattern sort of uh, land around it has this beautiful sort of like uh, I guess like natural sort of tones like browns and Mm -hmm. things like that and it's just it's really stands out Um, it's yeah so massive fan Um, (laughs) but when it came to I guess like then releasing it as part of this collection I find that pretty interesting so I was wondering if you could tell us about the development of the collection, especially when you've got like, I guess, like a number of products where you could use the artwork and incorporate it in a certain way. What sort of, I guess, like uh, thinking or, th- or thoughts go behind the development of a collection like Mianjin?
1: Honestly, it's my mom. <laughs> um, I am a very, I have a very art focused brain. So I'll create a piece of art and I'm like, well, I'm done. And my mum's like, actually, this would be really cool. And like a throw rug. And I'm like, oh my God, Mum, you're amazing. And then it we kind of work that way. So my mom will like research manufacturers and stuff. And a lot of it we do it ourselves. Like, you know, that we have like bookmarks and keychains and um like cups and things. We do all of that ourselves. We sublimated it ourselves at in my house. Um, I've taken over the spare room of our family home and yeah but except the, th- the throw is like some of the biggest projects that I've done for those listening I've made a throw rug of the artwork and it's beautiful it's it's really big and that I think making that throw rug was kind of like a how it's sounding so silly because it's a blanket was a big turning point in my career where I was like hey I'm actually good at this. I'm actually an artist. And my mum was so supportive and really pushed me to keep putting my art out there. So honestly, without my mum pushing me, the Me Engine collection wouldn't be together. And because I love, obviously, the Brisbane River and Me Engine so much, we, part of the collection, we wanted to give back to community. Because I always say that Little Button is for community. I want us to be visible in community. I want people in community to wear our stuff and come to us if they need anything. So part of the collection, we're donating some of the profits to um, Dreamtime Aroha who actively goes into the community, especially Jin and helps the unhoused people and oh, wonderful like food and clothes and all those sorts of things. So that's the collection as a whole kind of.
0: Yeah, excellent. Dreamtime Oroa is incredible. So that's that's <laughs> great to hear that that a portion of the proceeds are going towards assisting with their efforts. And so then I guess that brings us to your recent collection because you've had a busy <laughs> you've had a busy couple of weeks. <laughs> I'm um, very tired. <laughs> which is <laughs> which is great for people like me who are a fan of your work. <laughs> um, but you recently released a NADOC co- collection. And so I mm-hmm. wanted to have a chat about it. It's gorgeous. And I love the way you've spoken about your connection, I guess, to it online. So I wanted to start off by asking how has this NADOC theme of For Our Elders resonated with you, particularly in the development of that artwork?
1: Yeah. So um, it kind of, the whole thing started back when, you know, the NADOC themes announced and you apply for the poster competition. So I did that. And when I thought about the theme for our elders, I instantly, you know, I thought of, like, all the big things like the 10 Embassy, the Freedom Rides, like Gringey Strikes and all those big things that our elders did. Then I thought about, like, the four part of it, not just our elders. And I thought about how I interact with my elders and how I think most like mob and even non-Indigenous people can relate to this, that you start taking care of your elders by making them a cup of tea. Like you make a cuppa for your nan, your pop, your aunties and uncles. As soon as you can like boil a kettle, like it's something super ingrained in us is something that's really important. And I don't know. I think that that's something really beautiful, even though that sounds silly, it's just how we start to care for our elders Um so i drew a design for the poster competition which was a young girl making a cup of tea um for her auntie and then i also created a more abstract um piece that has different family makeups um represented by shapes like circles and like squarish ovals and things but they're all connected through brown lines which represents like a warm drink like a cuppa um And, yeah, that's kind of how it came into fruition. And we're selling it as um, tea, coffee, sugar canisters as well as mugs. And, yeah, I think that caring for our elders starts with making them a cuppa when you're little.
0: (laughs) That's so wholesome and I have the biggest (laughs) grin on my face, especially just that small little act of love of, you know, turning on the kettle and making Mm -hmm. a beautiful warm drink to warm their souls and hearts and Mm -hmm. how that is something that's, I guess, like, so, I don't know, so, so lovely, so intimate. And your, uh, so your the artwork that you've made of the girl with her auntie and, you know, <laughs> go on, make us another one <laughs> sort of vibes. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I do think that's just so beautiful. And so when I saw your abstract piece, which also absolutely incredible, super <laughs> consistent with the quality of work that you've done, but to well, see also that theme of, you know, having these... Um, you know, little sets of three mugs with the art with Mm -hmm. a different sort of variation on each and those canisters relating to tea and coffee and everything. It just felt so, so um, cohesive and just beautiful. So uh, yeah, I don't know, love it. And I love the the thinking behind it that's led to that too. Such a small act of love, um, indicative of something so much bigger. Mm, Thank you. Uh, So I guess I wanted to wrap up then on um, asking if you had, and we sort of, I guess, covered this when talking about sort of, I guess, like study pathways. But I was wondering if you had any advice for aspiring digital artists who might want to, I guess, follow in your footsteps.
1: Honestly, just give it a go and don't be scared to ask for help. Um, I remember when I was first starting, I was drawing on like digital art boards that were like 12 pixels and I was like why does my art look so bad <laughs> so I like messaged some other artists like Ray Designs and Rachel Sarah and I was like hi can you please help me and they were like super lovely and they're like yeah Bub, you need to like use more than 12 pixels to draw something no wonder why all your art is blurry <laughs> so just give it a go don't be scared there's so much love out there like Artists are like some of the most lovely people I've met. Message me if you want to know what I use, Um, any tips or tricks. I'm an open book. I'm always happy to help, but just give it a go. Don't be scared. Don't be shame.
0: (laughs) Shame is gammon. So, yeah, agreed. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm I'm just so thrilled with everything you're doing and I can't wait to see where your career takes you. Uh, So I hope you have a beautiful, happy nadoc, and uh, I look forward to seeing what you come up with next. Oh, thanks, sis. You too. All right, so we've just been speaking with Kalkadoon artist Bree Buttonshaw. If you are unfortunate enough to only be tuning in right now, remember that if you go to rrr.org.au, you know, sometime later this afternoon... Um, you can actually listen back to Indigenuity's broadcast and be able to hear the full chat that we've had with Brie about her fantastic art style and some of the exciting projects that she's been working on recently. And now it's that time of the show where I yarn to you all about the deadly astronomy of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, the world's first astronomers, and uh, in my very non-biased, unbiased opinion, um, the best way to be looking and understanding the skies. And so I wanted today to focus on the planets because the planets are very cool and they're very deadly, awesome, just mind-blowing things that Indigenous people have been able to observe about the planets in our sky that require such a dedication and such a careful eye that just, yeah, it's, it's, it's just definitely worth talking about. And so um, today's little chat's going to be a little bit of a two-parter. <laughs> so we're going to have a first sort of yarn, then a song break, and then um, sort of a follow-up portion to it. And so I'm going to explore some of my favorite sort of elements about relating to the planets. But I want to sort of start off in this first half with some sort of sort of basic introductions to the planets in our skies So starting off with some, I guess, some sort of insight to people who, you know, maybe aren't initiated into looking up and comparing things like planets and stars in our night skies. The planets have always stuck out to cultures around the world as this very fascinating object in our skies. Because on the surface, they present as though they're stars. They are these very bright spots in the sky and they move around. But if you were to be looking at them, you know, every night for a year... Or perhaps just for every night for a, for a, for a while, you're going to start to realise that they don't behave and they don't really look the same way stars do. Planets are something else, and so cultures around the world have recognised this for thousands of years. Indigenous Australians, being the very world's first astronomers, have been looking at them since time immemorial. So what's interesting about planets are uh, there are usually two qualities about them that help people realise that they are. Not stars, and instead they are star imposters. And one of these things is actually related to the way that they appear in the sky in terms of twinkling. So when it comes to stars, stars twinkle in a night sky, it's very beautiful. But it is great to know that the reason stars twinkle isn't actually because of the star itself. Where the star is, it is shining, and it's shining pretty consistently. Just like our sun. Our sun's a star. The light is pretty consistent. It's excellent for us trying to survive here on this planet. Great conditions for life to evolve. And so what's actually happening when we see stars twinkling is more that those stars are these very beautiful, faint points of light. That have to travel through our rather thick, rather turbulent, rather hectic atmosphere, which has gases, war, like, it, you know, it's got a whole heap going on, everything's mushing about, and there's poor little light rays trying to get through it. And unfortunately, it's just so vulnerable, and so it's getting shaken around and put on a pretty interesting path, and we're seeing that beautiful twinkling here. So the twinkling is just an effect of the atmosphere, and you can sort of actually learn a lot about the weather we're experiencing. By looking at the way stars and planets twinkle through the, like through our skies, but that's a chat for another day. <laughs> if I talk about everything that's related to this topic, we won't leave, and I'll um, be taking over <laughs> the rest of Triple R for this beautiful Sunday start to Nadoc. Maybe that's actually a great idea. You know, maybe people might give me a pass. But anyway, we'll stay on track. We'll stay on track. We'll talk about planets. So planets are very interesting because un- unlike these stars, so stars being a fine pinpoint of light at a very very crazy far away distance, that is just so vulnerable to our atmosphere. Instead, planets are actually so much closer. We're in the same solar system. They are our close neighbours, especially compared to stars, which are millions or th- thousands to millions of light years away. So that's a crazy distance. That is the distance that light could travel in a year when light travels just incomprehensibly fast. But planets are so much closer, they're in our neighborhood, and so instead of coming through our atmosphere as a pinpoint of light, it is instead actually coming through as a flat disk or a plane. And so this disk isn't as sensitive to all the things happening in our atmosphere, and so the planets tend to not twinkle. And so if you look for them, and for example, Venus is one of the br- the brightest object in our sky other than our sun and our moon, um, if you have a look at it, and it's been quite bright recently, you're going to see that it just it's just there. It's just a bright light, not twinkling. So in in you're starting to get those vibes of this is not a star. Another thing that planets do, which is very unique, is they have something called retrograde motion. And this is something that I first heard in an... horoscopial, (laughs) astrological context, so not the astronomy in which I study, but more um, the astrology relating to things like zodiac signs and um, all those sort of interpretations of the skies. Retrograde motion, however, is not something specific to astrology. It's actually describing the way that planets seem to be moving across our skies pretty consistently with a pretty good flow, but then all of a sudden, for some weird reason, they decide to just stop. And they've decided, no, 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 I see all the stars going in one way and I see all the other planets going in one way and I've decided I'm taking a break. And they decide to head backwards in the sky. Maybe they've left something at home and then decide to continue on their journey. And so this retrograde motion is really cool. And it's a reason that the word planet, so in the English language, has even been, uh, I guess, has ended up being that word. Planet is apparently derived from the Greek word for wanderer and it's because ancient Greek astronomers also looking at the skies are like, why are these stars wandering around, heading backwards, stopping, you know, going on their own and not behaving like every other star and every other object we see in the sky that tends to just move forward. And so what's actually happening here is that planets, because we're all orbiting around the sun and we're all in the same plane around our sun, we're all just going in these little circles. But the thing is, our planets move at different speeds. If they're closer to the sun, they're going to be whizzing around because they need to be moving very fast to sort of keep um, within the sun's, uh, keep a stable orbit around the sun. Planets that are further away, our gas giants, for example, they take decades just to do one lap of the sun. So we're all moving with different speeds. We've got different distances away. And so the planets are acting much in the way a car would if it was on a racetrack. So say, you know, we're on like an, an eight-lane eight racetrack and we're zooming around and we're going in these little circle laps around, just a very basic circular uh, racetrack, right? If we overtake a, a car, which in this case is a planet, so for example, we've got the third lane from the middle and we're overtaking as we zoom past Mars on the inside lane and you know we're moving faster so we go past it, what's going to happen is Mars is going to look like Mars is slowing down. Really, it's still moving at its speed. It's just we, Earth, the car, seems to be moving faster. And so as we pass it, you know, just doing a better job than Mars is around this racetrack, it's going to look like Mars is starting to slow down. It's come to a stop and then it's heading backwards. And so this idea of retrograde motion, it's something that doesn't make sense if you are looking at the skies with a perspective of thinking that the Earth is the center, so we end up with this retrograde motion because actually we're seeing the Earth, fr- uh, we're seeing the skies from the perspective of the Earth. We're not seeing them from the perspective of the Sun, which is where everything's actually going around. And so retrograde motion is more just an optical illusion. It's just us essentially doing better than our fellow planets at this beautiful race. And so what's really cool is, Waterman astronomers have noted this retrograde motion and described it as, with an understanding that the planets are just behaving on their own unique path. And they describe this as though the planets are behaving how any elder might, you know, they head out in the day and things are going great. They're walking around the great ancestral path in the sky, which is the path the sun makes and the planets are following this. And then, you know, they maybe left something at home or they saw someone that they wanted to chat to and they stopped, they double back and then head on their way. And so for me, I think this is just super cool because retrograde motion is something that (laughs) has taken uh, people a long time to understand what's actually happening with those objects. Um, and yet our deadly astronomers have noted it in a very long time ago. So unlike stars, which are consistently in the same spot from our point of view, at the same time each year, our planet's positions in the night sky feel a bit more random. And this is not just being, you know, this effect of retrograde motion, but this is because they don't really care, our neighbouring planets don't really care about what's happening with our orbit. So all the stars, we go around the sun, you know, once every 365 days and we see all these stars behave on a pretty trustworthy cycle. We have a whole range of things that happen. We have stars or constellations which, you know, uh, rotate at sunset throughout the year like the emu in the sky and we have um, stars that disappear for like six months of a year and then come back for the other half of the year. And so we have heaps of things but these are such consistent cycles that behave on our year (laughs) our important specific 365 day orbit around the sun. The thing is our neighbors don't care about our year. They don't care about our orbit and they have their own year around the sun. And so this leads to some pretty interesting things. So despite this indifference to the normal cycle of our objects in our sky, they still have a pattern to their movement. It may just not be what we would naturally sort of I guess, recognize instantly. They have regular patterns we can observe if we're careful enough. And so sure enough, Aboriginal astronomers have the intimate understanding of the skies to have seen this. So each planet has something called a synodic cycle. And this is the cycle of how we, people on Earth, see them in our sky, skies while we're here on Earth. Since we are all going around the same sun and we orbit at different speeds... And our years are different lengths, as, for example, on Earth, it takes 365 days to get to the same spot in its orbit. And for Venus, for example, takes only 225 days to end up in its original spot in its orbit. So it moves faster than us. And this means that their cycle that they make in our night skies doesn't obey our year. It also doesn't even obey their year. (laughs) It's a mix of the two. So yet we still find these super cool patterns called synodic cycles that they behave on in our skies. Synodic cycles are the cycle the planets in our solar system take to arrive back in the same position in our skies relative to the sun. So we're just like, if, if we're focusing on Venus, it's just me oh me. It's just us, Earth, Venus and the sun, just the three of us. That's what we're considering here. Okay. And so before we dive further into the idea of synodic cycles, I just want to take a second to talk about Venus itself because it deserves so much love. It's the second planet closest to the sun. It's a neighbouring planet of Earth. And in many ways, it's been considered a sister planet of Earth. And that's because unlike the rather small planet Mars, who tends to get most of the attention, Venus is a similar size to Earth. In in our field of astrophysics, our observations have given us a pretty good peek into what Venus is like nowadays, but also what it used to be like in the early years. Because you see... Venus has actually fallen victim to something called a runaway greenhouse effect. So Venus's atmosphere is made up of mostly carbon dioxide, which you may remember from such climate disasters as the one we're facing um, on our planet right now. This is the very gas driving the greenhouse effect on Earth. And what seems to have happened to Venus is that it appears to have started out as a planet that could have been capable of hosting life. It is a rocky terrestrial planet with similar size and density to Earth. And we believe that it once held water which we also think is necessary for life. However, this is where things took a dramatic downturn. Because with a thick atmosphere full of greenhouse gases, it means that the atmosphere ends up acting like a very heavy blanket. The sun's light and heat touches down onto the surface of the planet, for Venus, but then it can't bounce back out into space. And this is what we're scared of happening on our planet. And slowly, more and more, the planet starts heating up with no cooling mechanism. And so Venus is now known to be a scorching, arid, oxygen-poor planet with an average temperature of 477 degrees Celsius. Venus is closer to the Sun, and because of this, it moves around it faster. And as such, it's also closely tied to the Sun in our skies, because to us, Venus is found within our orbit of the Sun. It's just enclosed within our path, and so we see it nicely contained here. And so because of this... Its synodic cycle is going to um, behave in a pretty sort of unique way. So uh, Venus's year is 225 days, but its synodic cycle, the time that it'll take to end up in the same position relative to the sun and the earth actually takes 584. So that feels pretty random, right? Like who's going to pick up on that? That is something just very, very obscure. And this rise and fall, so because of the way that Venus is so close to the sun, It ends up being the evening and the morning star in our night sky. And so because of this, it also goes behind. It's always tied to the sun. It goes behind the sun for 50 days. It goes in front of the sun for only eight days. And it has 263 days as either the morning star and 263 degrees as as the evening star. And so this is a very specific, unintuitive cycle. And yet Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have noted That Venus is both these objects, it is both the morning star for 263 days and then 8 or 50 days later it's the evening star for another 263 days to the point where Yolnu communities hold a very specific ceremony relating to this cycle. And so that's crazy, right? For to have a cycle that's dependent on when Venus emerges on this 584-day cycle, and when elders, y'all know elders, are asked about how they knew when to hold this ceremony when there's no other sort of map in the sky for you to predict when it's approaching, they said they just simply count the days. And so to me, this is just a surreal level of connection to sky country that I could only wish to develop for myself. And I just want to reiterate that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are the world's first astronomers and just absolutely deadly in everything that they've done and everything that they continue to do. On this note, we're going to wrap up the show. So we've had a wonderful chat here today with Kalkadoon artist Bree Button. Um, If you want to listen back, you can go to rrr.org.au, search up Indigenuity and have a listen to our past shows. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity. A weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R every Sunday afternoon. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU.